Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Jar. My name's Chris, and we're so glad that you chose to hang out with us today. Um, One of the questions that most uh, human beings tend to ask at some point in their life is, what is God like? What is God like? I mean, if there is someone who has created everything and he knows it all and we're not here by accident in some way, then what is God like? I mean, what is this maker who created everything? What is he like? What is his nature like? And what is his character like? Uh, A few years ago, my youngest daughter, Jordan, or my oldest daughter, Jordan, uh, actually was reading the Bible and getting in the habit of doing that. And uh, she would read it each evening. And one particular evening, she was reading the Bible when she read this phrase, um, fear the Lord. And she said when she read that, she was in a room by herself, and she just started looking at the ceiling and going, I should fear the Lord. And she got kind of nervous about this and what did this look like and what was going on. And uh, she looked up at the ceiling again and she goes, my life is a lie. I'm a sham. I have not been fearing the Lord. And so in the midst of all of that, as she often does, she's very much like her mom. Uh, She strategically starts thinking and critically thinking. Well, dad and mom have told me my whole life that God is love, but how can God be love? And yet I need to fear him in some way. Like what's going on? And so she said she didn't sleep very much that night, but she eventually fell asleep. And then that next morning when I woke her up, she woke up and she said, dad, I am so scared. And I said, well, why are you scared? She says, I read the Bible last night and, and as I read it, it said to fear the Lord and I'm, I'm scared, I'm worried and, and I just haven't been fearing the Lord. So I think he's going to judge me and he's going to judge me harshly. Have you ever felt like you might be judged by God for something you've done that maybe you actually would even be judged harshly. Irma Bombeck, who uh, was a columnist, she tells the story of going to church one Sunday and she was sitting in one spot and beside her was a little boy and on the other side of her was that boy's mother. And the little boy started getting a little bit disruptive. He wasn't yelling, he wasn't crying, he wasn't making a big commotion. He just would kind of turn around from the pew and grin. And he would just grin and grin and grin ear to ear. And the people behind him, obviously, they started grinning too. And and they were doing all this. And he was grinning away when all of a sudden his mom grabbed his arm and turned him around and said, quit grinning, we're in church. And then she slapped him on the hand. And she said, at that moment, Irma looked and all she wanted to do was to take that child and grab him and hold him in uh, her arms and say, that is not the God that I know of. I wanted to tell him about the God that I knew, the happy God, the smiling God, the God who has a wonderful sense of humor because he created every single one of us. So let me ask you this morning, what is God like for you? 
What does God look like? What is God like? Is he harsh? Is he severe? Is he judgmental? Because whatever perspective that you see God being, it kind of determines the way that you interpret life. What is it that God looks like to you? I mean, what is it when you think about him that God looks most like? You know, I think a lot of people think that Christians uh, worship a judgmental God in which the God actually is a God who puts us in straitjackets, kind of like this picture. And we're in this straitjacket and we can't move and we're tied together. And if we do anything wrong, there is this huge amount of judgment that comes towards us. And we're tied down and we're put down in many different ways. That to be a Christian means to be a rule-following, box-checking, robotic, unthinking, judgmental, inflexible, severe, self-righteous, know-it-all. And folks wonder, folks, they wonder, does being a Christian mean that there is some arbitrary force out there in the universe telling us what we can and what we can't do, what we believe and what we can't believe, whether or not it makes any sense to us whatsoever? Well, today what I want to do is look at some of the writers of Scripture and how they viewed God, because when they first discovered God, what they uh, determined is, is that he looked very differently than the way that you and I perceive him. They did not perceive him as a God who had a straight jacket on us, who was judgmental and legalistic in character. In fact, it might actually kind of shock some of you who this God was when he first created human beings. And for some of you who've been in the church for a very long time, you might actually get offended. So get ready for some offense coming to some of you. Now, the teachers of the law, the rabbis, those who were teaching everything in Scripture realized that God had some very surprising instructions when he first created the world. And when he first created human beings in his image, we're told this, and God blessed them, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, that is, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The rabbis would note that these were the first words that God ever gave to human beings. You might actually say that they're the first commandment that God ever gave to us and they should be treated with great importance. Here, it's interesting, God doesn't say, don't sin. He doesn't say, you are to read your Bible every day. He doesn't say you are to pray. Actually, his first commandment, which is very surprising, he looks to them and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, here's a question for each one of you. If humans are going to be fruitful and multiply, what activity must they actually get involved in? Okay? So turn to the person beside you and tell them what activity they must become involved in if they are to be fruitful and multiply. Those of you on the stream, you go ahead, say it yourself. Go ahead, tell the person beside you. 
okay, you're very, very quiet because we can't say this in church, can we? If you're going to be fruitful and multiply, what's the activity you have to do, folks? It is what? Sex. Woo! They said it in church. I can't believe it. No, it's sex. And what's interesting about this is that God says, not only be fruitful and multiply, but he actually commands to fill the earth. And there's only two people. The circumference of the earth is 25,000 miles. There are 8 billion people almost on planet earth today. So if you go from two people to 8 billion people, how much sex must it take? What would you say? A lot. There has to be a lot of sex. Now, in order for this commandment to be fulfilled, God made sex an extremely desirable and delightful activity. And the rabbi said, we know this from the text because when the man first saw the woman, he broke out in Hebrew poetry. The scripture says it's like a song. He said this, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called what? Woman. Now, Old uh, Testament scholars actually said that Adam was probably not this articulate. This is really not probably what he said. He actually probably said something like this. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. And that's where we get the word woman. Some of you are slow today, okay? So this is the first commandment, folks. Have sex, have a lot of sex, have a lot of great sex. Are you still with me this morning? (laughs) Then let's look at the second commandment. This is what it says. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may, what's the next word? Freely. You may freely eat of what? Every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now, what's very interesting here is, first of all, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And basically was saying, have a lot of sex. And then secondly, the second command is he's like, eat, like eat, 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 eat all you can, eat everything inside. Go ahead and eat every tree in the garden. How many of you like to eat? Just raise your hand. Okay, not every hand was raised. What do we call those people? Liars. You all like to eat. We all like to eat. I like Mexican food. I like Italian food. I like Chinese food. I like American food. I like steak. I like chicken. I like fish. I like the O's food group. Do you know what the O's food group is? Doritos, burritos, fritos, tostitos. I like all the O's, right? Like any of the O's, I'm good with it. I'm down with it. And that's the second commandment that's given. I want you to eat. I want you to eat great food. I want you to stuff your face. That's how much I want you to eat. But he doesn't stop there. 
Then he gives a third commandment. This is all before the fall, before Adam and Eve turn away from God. God says to them, exercise dominion. In other words, take charge, rule over every fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, you as human beings are in charge of everything on earth. And I want you to do stuff. I want you to make things and invest in things and create things and discover things and build cities and make art and make paintings and make wonderful music. I want you to train dolphins and ride elephants and collect butterflies. I want you to create language and story and write books. I want you to develop technology. I want you to build machinery that will create these really cool stuff. Just do some great things. So, In the very beginning, God gives three commandments. He says, have a lot of great sex, eat a lot of great food, and go ahead and make a lot of great stuff. And that's it. He says, that's what I want you to do. And God said, if you will do that, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless your life. But it isn't long until the rabbis finally realize as they're writing the stories of scripture, that human beings are blind. We tend to fall. We tend not to want to follow what God wants us to do. We want to do what we want to do. And so we flub up, we mess up, we screw up in life. We do it over and over again. Even though God blesses us, we tend to disobey him. And so what they realized was what was needed was we need to know how not to do this. God, will you help us how to know how to live a good life? So the psalmist says this and many of the other writers, they realized that that the commands, that the laws actually were for our benefit. That laws and commands were not to restrict our freedom, to put us in a a straitjacket. It actually was to benefit us, to give us more freedom. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. It says, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your what? Commands. Any of you dog owners out there? You ever see your dog do this? They just start panting, right? Now, if it's a really good dog owner, this usually happens when they get their food, they put it in a bowl, or they have a treat, and they tell the dog, you have to sit. And then eventually, you see the dog going, and there's saliva, and there's slobber, there's everything. And then all of a sudden, they go, go eat. And why do they do that? Because they want the good stuff. They want the good food. They want the really, really good treat. And so they go and they go off. And the picture that the psalmist gives us is of people saying, oh, I want the good stuff. I'll pant for the good stuff. I want another commandment. God, this is what I desire most of all. Now, why does he say this? It's not because he thinks that the law or the commands are there to control him, to 
limit him, to put him in a straitjacket. He actually says this because he realizes that these laws, these commands are not judgments towards us. They're actually a benefit to us that we would live our life in a way that we would always want the good stuff. That we would know how to live within the good stuff. That the commands were there to help us to flourish and to grow, to have joyful productivity within each one of our lives. It's the good stuff. And you know what it does? It prevents us from wasting our life, from becoming addicted, from becoming enslaved, from saying things and doing things that hurt the other people around us. So, as somebody who loves God and who loves life and who wants the planet to flourish, the psalmist and every rabbi was convinced of this, that all God's commands are given to bless human life. And that's our big idea this morning, that all God's commands are not to limit us, not to judge us, not to put us down. They're actually given to bless every single human life. You see, God gives us commands not because he's legalistic, not because he's judgmental, not because he's on a power trip somehow, but he gives us commands and laws so that we could actually receive the blessings that come in human life. So if that's the case, if that's the case, then where did this whole idea of God being judgmental and harsh and like Jordan looking up and thinking, I've got to fear the Lord. Well, where did this come from? I'm glad that you ask. In Genesis chapter three, we're told this. Now the serpent was crafty, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, now notice this. Did God really say You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, of course, God didn't say that at all. God did not say that you can not eat from any tree of the garden. He actually said you can eat from every tree. That's the word that God uses. He says you can eat from every tree that is in the garden except this one. Every tree except this one. So what's going on here? Well, the scripture gives us some great insight to how our mind actually works. You see, what happens is, is when we want to be our own God, when we want to do our own thing, typically there is a temptation that comes from the evil one. And then all of a sudden it comes to us and we're left with the decision, who's going to be God of my life? And Then all of a sudden we decide, well, I'm going to decide what is right and what is wrong in my world. You see, if I'm not going to do the right things, this is what you have to do. If you're not going to do the right thing, this is what you have to do. You have to rationalize why you're not doing the right thing. Any of you ever do that before? Yes. All of you should be shaking your heads. We rationalize why we're not going to do something right. Well, the reason why I'm not going to do the right thing is this. Doesn't it make sense? Well, it makes sense to me, so it must be okay. And that's exactly what human beings have been doing since the beginning of time. In our story, both Adam and Eve eat from the only tree God told them not to eat from. They deliberately disobeyed God. 
Now, some people, though, when they read this story, and it's a fair question to ask, they will wonder, well, why did God put a forbidden tree in the garden at all? Because surely he knew that was going to make them want to disobey, like human beings. If you tell a human being, don't do this, what are they typically going to do? Whatever that thing is. Why didn't he just let them eat from every tree? Well, he did. He said every tree except this one. Well, this is what you need to understand, folks, is that this story is not about fruit. What was the name of the tree again? The not, it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't about fruit. It was about whether or not I was going to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And I don't want some moral authority outside somewhere telling me what is right or what is wrong. I'm going to do my own thing. I want to decide this is right for me and this is wrong for me. That's what I'll do. I'm not listening to anybody else. No one else will ever tell me what to do. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that ended with Adam and Eve? Now your response should be this. No. Did it end 3,000 years ago when everything kind of started coming together with the rabbis and scripture? No, it's alive and well, and it is kicking today, including the guy who's talking to you right now. You see, the Bible is quite clear that there is a right, there is a wrong, and that's just the way things are built. I don't get to have the opportunity to make it up myself any more than I get to decide the law of gravity. The law of gravity, folks, right? It's just there. And I can't actually break it. I can break myself, right, by violating it, but I can't break it. There is righteousness, there is wrongness, there is right, there is wrong, there is good, there is evil. It's built into how life works. You see, folks, in the Bible, there was this love for the law. People actually would look at the laws and the commands and they're like, oh, these are the things that are going to help me to live a good life. It's going to help me to get to the good stuff. So I want more of that in me and I want to follow those things, not because God is judgmental, but actually because he's giving us something that is for my benefit. It's going to benefit me. But if that's the case, folks, and we have to ask the big question, what about those harsh laws that are in the Bible? Because anyone who's ever read the Bible before We'll read some things and they'll be, that's harsh, that's severe. God seems very judgmental. He seems very vengeful. Well, let's look at one of the examples of that. It's found in Leviticus chapter 24. It says this, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Now, this seems very primitive and cruel, doesn't it? So what we have to do is we have to go all the way back 
3,000 years ago in ancient times to see what the world was like. You see, folks, in the ancient world, there was no police officers. Uh, There was no, like, uh, legal system that had this gigantic judicial understanding. There was no law enforcement that had a structure like we had today. In the world of the ancient world, if you were rich and powerful, you could do whatever you want to anyone that you want. And if you were poor, you were scum and you just had to deal with it. You got the shaft. I mean, if I'm rich and you're poor, I can do whatever I want and you have no say whatsoever, even if I want to kill you. I'll just kill you. It doesn't matter. They just moved on. Now, what scripture did was it said, no, 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 no. God says, we're not going to play this game anymore. We're actually going to give some limits to what can happen. And so this was one of the limits. The first time in the ancient world where this came was from the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible basically said this, if you're rich, you cannot just do whatever you want. If you knock out a person's tooth, then They can knock out your tooth, but you can't kill them. If you're poor and that happens, you do the same thing, but you cannot end their life. He put restrictions around them. He's saying, even if you're rich and powerful, if somebody does that to you, there is a limit to what you can do to them. He's telling to those who are poor, you have rights too. If something happens to you, you have the same right. This was exactly the huge enormous kind of perspective of justice that the world never even knew about until the God of the Bible. So now, how do we know this? Yeah, that's in the Old Testament, Chris. How do we know this? Well, we know this because this is exactly what Jesus came to do, to teach about. He actually said this. He said, all of the laws, everything that is in the Old Testament and all of what the prophets say can be lived out through the context of the greatest overarching commandment the world has ever been given. And it's this, love God with all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. If we all did that, all the other laws, all the other commands would be taken care of. You see, folks, none of the law is to be observed in a legalistic kind of mechanical way. We know this from Jesus' teaching in his life. Jesus taught us that God wants you to walk through life with freedom, not in a straitjacket. And that's why he gave laws and commands so that we would obey him. We would follow those and live that kind of life. You know, it's really interesting to me, though, in our culture today, when we think about the law or the commands, we think someone's out to get us. For example, if there's a police car that drives by or there's one, you're, you're driving a little fast and you come up on a police car. What's your first thought? Oh, I'm so glad they're there to help me. Your first thought is you get worried, you get nervous, you get anxious. You're like, oh, what's going to happen? And that's the problem. We think this limit. We are tempted to define freedom, though, this way. I want to do what I want when I want. I want to be free to do what I want when I want to do it. But then something strange happens. Anytime somebody lives their life to do whatever they want, whenever they want, what happens to them? They actually get enslaved. When they want no boundaries to do whatever they want, whatever right thing, they actually become 
enslaved. The Bible put it like this. People are slaves to whatever has, what's the next word? Mastered. Alcohol is a master. Lust is a master. Money can be a master. Success can be a master. We talked about it last week. Anger can be a master. They can all eventually, folks, feel like a straitjacket. Folks, God does not want you to be enslaved. He wants you to be freed so much. That's why he gave the laws and the commands. And this is how much God loves you. That he said that even if you break the laws or commands, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send my one and only son to come to take on the debt that you can't pay for yourself. And Jesus realized it and he actually took on the debt and he purchased your freedom so that you could walk through life free. You don't have to carry any debt anymore. You don't have to see God as this judgmental, hard-nosed person, but you can see him as one who gives laws and commands for your benefit, for your life, and it's a gift of freedom that is given to everybody. Now, one of my favorite pictures of this idea of debt being forgiven took place at a Azusa Pacific University several years ago. There was uh, graduation week, and before graduation, they would have these different banquets, and they had one particular banquet, and there were parents and students and faculty and staff that all came, and the president of the university stood up and talked to the students and then said, there are three students today, though, I would like you to come up because we know you've got some really amazing things that you're getting ready to do in your life. And he had the three of them come up to the stage. And when they came up, he actually prayed for them. And then after the prayer, the students were getting ready to go back down to their seats. And he said, hold up, hold up, hold up. Stay up here for a second. And then he went ahead and he looked at the first student. And uh, he said, "Uh, Blake, There is someone that you do not know and you have never seen before, but they've heard about the story of your life and the good that you're going to do. And they've decided to actually pay for all of your debt. And Blake owed $75,000. Can you imagine what that must have felt like to have all of his debt paid for in one moment? Then the president looked at the second student. And when he looked at her, he said, Ashley, there's somebody that you do not know that you have never seen before, but they've heard about your story and the good that you're going to do in your life. And uh, they've decided to pay all of your debt off from school. And she owed $90,000 and Ashley lost it. She just started bawling, crying, just was totally consumed by it. Then the president looked to the third student, and you can imagine if you're the third one, he's shaken. And the kid actually started crying even before the president said anything. And this student owed $120,000. And the president looked and said, there is a person that you do not know, that you have never seen before, but they know the good that you're going to do in your life and they have decided to pay off your entire debt. And he started bawling and sobbing. They're all sobbing and everyone just started applauding and clapping, rejoicing on what had happened. Now, this is what I need you to know. Every single one of us in this auditorium, every single person on the stream, you owe a debt. 
You owe a moral debt that you cannot pay. And God sent laws and commands not to put you down, not to judge you, not to let you down, but to give it to you as a benefit. But you and I choose every single day not to do that, to do our own thing, to be our own God. And he said, even though you do all of that, I love you so much, I'm going to send my one and only son to come. We just celebrated a couple weeks ago and die on a cross for your sins, for your moral debt, and three days later come back again so that you could live in freedom, freedom for all. And it is given to anyone who turns to the one who is Jesus Christ. And then there's one more thing, folks. Paul, the guy who wrote close to half of the New Testament, says this. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Folks, it's the weirdest thing in the world. When I want to live my life to do whatever it is that I want to do and I think I'm free, I'm actually destroying my freedom. And yet, and yet, when I surrender to God, when I say, God, I'm giving you everything I have, I abandon, I abandon myself to you. God, I'm placing my life into your hands I'm no longer going to live for my agenda, live for my ego. I'm actually dying to it. I'm dying to my agenda and my ego. I just want to go moment by moment with you and with you only, God. It's when we do that, folks. It's when we do that, that we're free. We're actually free. And who... The Son sets free. Who Jesus sets free, which is every single one of us who choose to turn to him. He says, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Loving God, thank you so much for the way that you work in each one of our lives. Thank you, God, for being a God who is filled with fairness and goodness and justice. Thank you, God, also for giving us commands and laws that are actually for our benefit so that we would live a life that is the best of life, the life of the good stuff. Maybe some of you are here today and you've experienced the love of God in your life. You have known him to be good and kind and forgiving to you. But maybe there is an area of your life, some area of your life, that if you were honest, you would have to say, you know what? God doesn't have that part of me. I'm choosing to be the God of that area. Maybe for some of you, there's somebody that you need to forgive. They hurt you in some way. You've never forgiven. You've just been carrying that grudge. Or maybe there's someone you need to seek forgiveness from, someone that you hurt in some way, and you've never said, will you forgive me? 
Maybe there's someone that you wronged sexually and you actually need to go to that person and to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to clean up a lie. You've been carrying a lie again and again and again, day after day, week after week, year after year. You just need to make it right. Maybe you need to pay somebody back who you borrowed money from and you never paid them back. Or maybe you borrowed something from them and it's still in your garage and you never thought about giving it back to them. Maybe for some of you, there's something in your life that you're hiding. It's a skeleton in the closet. You're keeping it to yourself and you actually need to bring whatever that is to the light. If any of those things are in your life, if any of those resonate to where you're at, I want to ask you to do a bold thing right now. All the lights are off. No one's looking around. Everyone on the stream as well for you to do this. But if there's one of those things that's going on in your life and you keep thinking, well, God's going to judge, God is judging me for this. You've just never asked for forgiveness from him or done the right thing with someone else in a bold kind of courageous way. If there's one of those areas, then I'm going to invite you to just simply raise your hand. You can close your eyes, just raise your hand and let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for each hand that is raised for the bold move that it took to do that. And whatever the issue is, God, that they haven't really surrendered to you, that they haven't done the right thing, I pray that you would give them the strength to do it now. Give them the power that comes only from you to do the right hard thing. And let them know that you are on the other side of that that says that's where the freedom comes. Freedom, freedom, and even more freedom. I pray, God, that they would receive it, that they would do the right thing, whatever that is. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, maybe some of you are uh, sitting there and uh, you have a pile of debt, moral debt. And you've never really gone to God to say, God, would you please forgive me of all of this? Maybe you've always thought, you know what, I've done just so many things that are so wrong and so bad that there's no way that there would be a God who would forgive me for this. But I want you to know today that that God is there saying, I'll erase the debt. Just like he did uh, in my life and just like he did in so many of your lives. He says, whatever it is, I erase it today. I Wipe it clean. Someone that you haven't seen, someone that you've never had a handshake with, Jesus comes down today and he says, because of what I did on the cross, I want to forgive. I want to wipe the slate clean for you to no longer walk with any sense of sin or judgment. I wipe it clean today and he can do it. He did it for me. And I know he wants to do it for you. And so if you're at that point where you're like, that's what I need. I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I need his love. I need his grace. I need his forgiveness. I need a second chance from him. I need a second chance of this life to live in that freedom. Then I'm going to invite you in a prayer. And it's not a prayer that you say by yourself, but it's one that we pray together. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, just to simply, if you feel comfortable to repeat 
this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, I give my life to you. Jesus, forgive me. Make me new. I believe you died and rose again so I could live with you. Fill me with your spirit so I could follow you for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. Today, I give it to you. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.